Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13. We're going to be looking at several passages in Scripture. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so get the fellow's attention. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, they have some. They'll give that to you. And when I say give, I mean that is our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of the Bible. So please accept that as our gift to you. And we're looking at Romans 13 in a break from our series through the book of James, because as you see on the screen at the top, election 2012. And I have been, in the last couple of weeks, confronted with my own responsibilities as a pastor to guide our congregation in biblical principles of citizenship, and particularly as it relates to voting. So we're going to take this week to look at Romans chapter 13 and some other passages related to what God says about the responsibilities of government and then our responsibilities to the government. And as I do this, I understand that fools rush in and that this is undoubtedly going to make some people upset with me, but I'm going to do my best to stick to the principles of what God says in His Word and then if folks are upset with me, I'm good with that. If you're upset with me about my own opinion, well, then I'm happy to talk with you about that and perhaps even change my own opinion because it's just that, my own opinion. The first election that I really got involved in and cared about was the one that was held the year I graduated from high school in 1980. And that was when Ronald Reagan defeated incumbent president Jimmy Carter. During that election and during the Reagan administration that followed, I was introduced to the rough and tumble of politics because I followed it somewhat closely. And I did that because at that time, as a freshman in college, I intended to pursue a political career myself. I even got involved with a group some of you may remember called the Moral Majority. And that year, the late 70s, the Moral Majority and the Christian Roundtable and other such groups, morally conservative groups, uh, helped turn out evangelical voters for Reagan in large numbers. And they were widely credited with helping him to get elected that particular year. I supported Reagan then and again in 84 and his vice president, George Bush, the elder, in 88. Now, I say that I was introduced to the rough and tumble of politics because I was dismayed at the way the presidents Reagan and Bush were treated by their opponents, including the media. I attended the University of Michigan at Dearborn during part of the Reagan years, and I was one of the few students in the political science department who self-identified as a conservative. In none of the many political science classes I took did I find any sympathy for Reagan or his administration. In fact, to the contrary, some of my professors would out and out lie about him. For instance, in one of my classes, a prof said, a bill that had been introduced in Congress at the time and was supported by the administration, that that bill would outlaw premarital sex. Well, it turned out I had a copy of that act in my briefcase. And that's because I was doing an internship with then-Michigan Senator Don Regal. Now, I know Regal's a liberal, but it was giving me some experience, so I had an internship at there. And so as a result of that, I had access to stuff like that. And I raised my hand, and I told the prof I had a copy of it, and it didn't say what he claimed it said. He said he didn't have time to look at it on the spot. I said I'd give him my copy. He could look, and he could tell us the next time we reconvened for class in a few days. And so at our next class, I expected him to start out by saying I was asked this question. I looked into it, but he said nothing about that. Nothing was said during the course of his lecture at all. And when we got to the end, I asked if he had been able to look, and he admitted that he had, and that he had been, quote, mistaken. That is, he lied. My classmates despised Reagan. 
I remember having lunch with some when one of them asked me, how can you support a president who wants to blow up the world? That's the kind of penetrating analysis you get at the University of Michigan in the political science program. I'm thinking the president wants to blow up the world. That was one of the many calumnies that were perpetuated about the president, that he was a warmonger. Truth is, he proposed the elimination of all nuclear weapons, and the Soviet Union rejected it. Truth is, his policies contributed greatly to the ultimate demise of the Soviet Empire, which in 1983 he called an evil empire, rightly, I might add, and yet he was pilloried in the press for doing so. Students at U of M would walk around on campus with gas masks on because they were afraid that Reagan was going to start a nuclear war at any time. He was called names. I remember Detroit's Mayor Coleman Young referring to the president as Old Prune Face. And during those years, I came to dislike ABC News White House correspondent Sam Donaldson because of what I saw as his disrespectful manner with which he treated the president in his question. The first President Bush was elevated from being vice president for eight years under Reagan when he was elected in his own right to the presidency in 1988. He, too, was treated harshly by the media, subjected to conspiracy theories, one of which received a lot of attention but had no basis in fact, And it was that he had facilitated a deal with Iran to help defeat President Carter eight years earlier by having Iran hold on to our hostages until after the election. And they, in turn, would get arms from us. That claim was investigated to death, both by journalists and even Congress, proven to be false. Nevertheless, that rumor persisted for more than a decade, and it may have hurt his re-election chances in 1992. So for the first 12 years of my adult life, there were Republicans in the White House who I had supported, and I was very angry at how they had been treated by the media and others who opposed them. And then in 1992 came Bill Clinton. My wife reminded me as I was telling her what I was going to talk about today. Actually, she writes the sermon. She tells me what I'm going to talk about. We might as well just get that out there. But I was telling her, and she said, I remember that election in 92 and how distraught you were. I didn't remember this. She said, that night we were visiting a funeral home, the night of the election. And I came out of the funeral home and turned on the radio to find out what the results were as they were coming in. And it was clear that there was going to be a Clinton victory. And I nearly turned around, went back into the funeral home to crawl into a casket and just end it all right there. I say that because Clinton embodied for me all that had gone wrong in America. A draft-dodging, pot-smoking, 60s radical whose wife's name was not Hillary Clinton but Hillary Rodham, then later Hillary Rodham Clinton, only later to be simply Hillary Clinton, the one that we all know and, well, the one we all know. (laughs) The 90s were not only the rise of the Clintons for eight eight years, but also the advent, really, of the Internet, really getting going. And I began to read on the Internet about the Clintons, and I discovered that when President Clinton was governor in Arkansas, that he may have been involved in allowing illegal drugs to run through the MENA Regional Airport in Arkansas. He and his wife were involved in a questionable land deal during their days in Arkansas, involving real estate through a company they had formed called the Whitewater Land Development Corporation. Some of you will remember the Whitewater scandal that consumed years of the Clinton presidency. One of their friends from Arkansas who had done some work on Whitewater and had come to D.C. with them was a man named Vince Foster, whose dead body was found in a D.C. park in 1993. It was ruled a suicide, but Rush Limbaugh and others assured us that it was no suicide. 
but it was a murder to keep him from talking. And the Clintons, especially Hillary, were involved. Draft dodging, pot smoking, drug trafficking, whitewater, potentially murder. I hated, I hated the distortions and the conspiracies of the previous 12 years. But suddenly I wasn't so opposed to treating presidents with disdain and peddling half-truths as facts. After all, he's an evil Democrat. And after all the investigations and all the money and all the time arguing my conspiracies against the Clintons, nothing panned out. I began to mellow. God began to mellow me a bit on conspiracy theories. And I began insisting that truth be solid on what we say or the theory not be promulgated. What a concept. George W. Bush, elected in 2000, again in 2004, was treated similar to his dad and Reagan and Clinton. He was said to have lied to get us into a war. That's despite the fact that the Clinton administration believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, as did the British government. But nonetheless, his opponents did what opponents do. And the Internet has been in full swing in the last 15 years or so. And then came Barack Hussein Obama. And I have, I have rarely seen more conspiracy theories related to someone than I've seen related to President Obama. Now, I told you all that story about my background because I can relate to all this. I've done it. I've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. But it doesn't make it right, does it? It doesn't make it accurate. It doesn't make it biblical. It does not make it Christian. And so the questions that have surrounded our president, and I say our president, some of you have said he's your president, not mine. Dear friends, we're going to see from God's Word he's our president. And he has been these four years. He may be for another four years. We will see. And the things that have been said about our president are unbelievable. First of all, where did he come from? And years are spent trying to figure that out. And some of you promulgate that on the Internet and with your friends and through the conspiracy theories. Some said, I had emails sent to me that said that when President Obama was inaugurated, that he put his hand on not the Bible, but the Koran. Anybody seen that out on the Internet? Because he's a closet Muslim. What's well, untrue? He actually put his hand on the Bible. In fact, the same Bible that Abraham Lincoln used in 1861. And you know, you could check these things out fairly easily. <laughs> on the Internet, there are things like Snopes.com. So before you forward, check Snopes. Or check truthorfiction.com. And they always have this, this stuff. Or I had someone tell me that President Obama is the Antichrist. The Antichrist. And when I, I guess I had a look of disbelief. So that then the person said, I'll send you the email. Well, I'm sure that'll have all the information that I missed from reading Scripture. Because the Scriptures do describe someone who will come in the future called the Antichrist. And he is, he is the prince of the people, the, the, of, of the people, the Jews. Barack Obama doesn't qualify, biblically, to be the Antichrist. And so do you see, friend, that the way we often, we, and I include myself, the way we approach our politics and the way we approach government, even as Christians, is really mostly about whose ox is being gored. 
And so I ask you this before we look at what God says. Have you looked at what the Bible says about government? My guess is that virtually every person here came into this room knowing for whom they're going to vote in two days. I do as well. But the question is, did you come to that conclusion by consulting what God says about what government's supposed to do? And then in turn, our responsibilities to hold government accountable to do that. And my guess is a fair number fewer of us have actually done that. We've come to our conclusions based upon what we like about tax policy or about the economy without consulting what God says about why he instituted government. Some of you came into your relationship with Jesus with your politics already intact without ever having consulted what God says. And a relationship with Jesus has meant nothing with regard to your politics. I'm asking you as I ask myself, friends, are we allowing God's Word to shape our thinking on this most important matter? Or are we simply allowing our backgrounds and our preferences and our team and the team that we want to win to dictate that for us? And if not, as I suspect is the case for many of us, if not, then do we have the humility to admit that? We're two days out from an election. When we finish this service, we are going to have our fellowship time as we do every week. And some of you are going to do what you do every week. You're going to talk politics. You're going to talk about your team and why your team's better. But after we're done here, it might be that you have come to recognize I was wrong about that. Do you have the humility to admit that? And so these are big stakes. They involve truth. They involve God's Word and what He says, what He says about politics, government, government's responsibility, our responsibility to government. And it requires God's Holy Spirit to move upon our hearts, to make us sensitive to what He says, to make us open to that, and then to be willing to change accordingly. Let's pray then and ask God to help us as we do. Father, you know everything that is happening in your world It is all by your design. And therefore, from the very outset, help us to have calm hearts about what happens two, three days from now. Because come what may, you will not change. Your position as the sovereign of your world will not change. So help us to be comforted by that. But but help us in this few sacred moments, as we look into your words, to see what you say about why you gave us government. What government, according to you, is supposed to do. And then help us to make wise application of what you have said in two days as we exercise this precious freedom that you have afforded us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I encourage you to take a look at the outline that's inserted in your program where we have two major points that I'd like to go through from various scriptures with you that tell us what God says about government's God-given, first of all, government's God-given responsibilities toward us. And those come to us from a number of passages, one of which is in Romans 13. Romans 13 and verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to you to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. 
for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Now, in this passage, the Scriptures tell us a few things that God has given government to accomplish. And I have them in your outline. God's Government's God-given responsibilities toward us include government is to promote what is right. Government is to promote what is right. And so the passage in Romans 13 tells us in verse 3, rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Do what is right, the end of verse 3, and he will commend you. God has given government, and God has given government to be his agent to promote what is right. The Bible tells us elsewhere, I have on the screen for you, that government authorities are sent by God to commend those who do right. And so God tells us that I gave government, government is my agent, and my agent to do a number of things, one of which is to promote what is right. That then raises the question, what's meant by what is right? Well, we are looking at a book that you have in your lap for instructions about government. God is telling us in that book, in the Bible, His Word, why He gave government. And so one way to approach what is right would be to say the entire 66 books of the Bible. And government's responsibility then is to enforce what is right according to everything that's contained in Scripture. But we need to step back and think about that for a moment. We're at church on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Most of us do that every week. We do that because God says to gather as His people on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. He tells us some things to engage in when we gather together during a worship time together. And that's why we do this the way we do it. It's all because of what He said in His Word. That's a right thing to do. The question then is, if a government is charged by God to promote what is right, does that mean that there should be a law that says everybody goes to church on Sunday? Everybody comes to our church on Sunday. Have you ever thought about that? Government's to promote what is right, but then the question is, what is the scope of the right that government is to perform? What is it that God holds citizens responsible for and governments responsible to enforce in those citizens. And we're going to see that there's a category of things that God puts into the right that He holds all citizens responsible for. But before we look at that, look at the second point in your outline. Government is to promote what's right, but not only that, but to punish what's wrong. And so, indeed, Romans 13 tells us that as well. Rulers hold no terror, verse 3, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Verse 4, he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And so God gives government to promote what is right and then to punish what is wrong. God says that elsewhere, again, in 1 Peter 2. Government authorities are sent by God, yes, to commend those who do right, but also to punish those who do wrong. So as we think about what God says about the responsibilities of a government, He makes very prominent in Romans 13, in 1 Peter chapter 2, promote what is right, punish what is wrong. And God has given the government the authorization to do that. Thus the word authority. They've been authorized by God to carry this out. In punishing those who do wrong, it includes killing people. You say, how do you know that? <laughs> Verse 4 of Romans 13 says, He does not bear the sword for nothing. 
and they used the sword in New Testament times, at the time this was written, to behead people, execute, capital punishment. God has given government as his agents to avenge what is wrong, punish what is wrong. This goes all the way back to the first book in your Bible where Scripture says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man, shall his blood be shed. Here is why. For, because, in the image of God has God made man. So in Genesis chapter 9, God institutes civil government, and he gives instructions with regard to the scope of authority for that government, which includes the taking of the life of one who has taken another life. He who sheds man's blood will have his blood shed. And then gives the reason. For, because. In his image, God has made man. Now you may say to yourself, that was at the beginning. That's Genesis 9. How long does that last? Well, we've just read in your New Testament, Romans 13, he does not bear the sword for nothing. But also notice the reason, again, in Genesis 9, 6, for which God institutes capital punishment. Because for, in the image of God, God has made man. The question then is, how long is man in the image of God? (laughs) And man is just as much in the image of God today as he was in Genesis 9. As a matter of fact, that verse was written after the fall, after the entrance of sin, and yet the image of God is not obliterated, though it's marred, though it's been effaced, it has not been erased. And therefore, anyone who takes the life of another is subject to having his or her life taken, says God. Punishing wrong. You say, well... I've heard you talk about abortion, for instance, and that you believe, and the Bible does teach, that all life is sacred from conception, and therefore I am against abortion because God is against abortion. Well, if you're against abortion, if you're against the taking of life in abortion, how can you be okay with the taking of life in capital punishment? You're contradicting yourself. I've heard this many times. You're contradicting yourself. If you're against the taking of life, then you can't be for the taking of the life of the criminal who's committed a capital offense. But I'm not against, and God is not against, the taking of life. I am not against because God is not against the taking of life. I'm against, and God is against, the taking of life of innocent life. And an unborn child is an innocent life. And one who has committed a capital offense is by definition a guilty life. And God says, I have given government for the purpose of punishing what is wrong and promoting what is right. Now, what's the scope of that right and that wrong? If it's not to enforce church attendance, if it's not to have laws that say each person will give a tenth of their income, everybody will tithe, or other things that the Bible might teach in precept or principle, if it's not those things, then what is that scope? Well, in this very book of Romans, God gives us that scope. And if you'll hold your finger in Romans 13 and turn back to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. Romans 1, all the way through Romans chapter 2, Paul, who wrote this letter, is making an argument. And his argument that he's going to make through 16 chapters that comprise this letter is this, that all people require the same solution for sin because all people are equally under sin, no matter who they are, Jew, Gentile, whoever they are. And in beginning to make that argument that the good news of the gospel is the answer for everyone who believes, 
first for the Jew, then for the, for the Gentile. For everyone, in making that case, he is going to take a couple of chapters at the beginning to show that everyone is sold under sin. Even those who don't have God's Word are guilty of sin. Even those who have not been told to attend church every Lord's Day or to give regularly of their their income and other things that we have read and follow in Scripture. Nevertheless, they are held accountable by God for their sin. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, note now, from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Notice, no Bible here. What they have is creation. And by virtue of what has been made, by virtue of creation now, God holds men accountable for certain things. And he goes on to explain in verses 21 through 23 that men have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they have worshipped created things rather than the Creator. Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And because of this, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. God is basing this upon His institution at original creation. One man, one woman, one lifetime. And God has made clear, not just in special revelation, not just in the book, in the written word, but in creation itself, in nature itself, that man was made for woman and woman was made for man. And any society that descends to the violation of this natural law morality, God will judge. When God says, promote what is right, God has told all people what is right in general revelation, in creation, that men were made for women, women for men. Government's responsibility to promote what's right. Is the party you're going to vote for promoting what is right according to the natural law to which God holds all men and women accountable? And you might think of this natural law given in Romans 1 this way. Accountants, I had to take a few accounting classes when I was in college. Accountants have principles like first in, last out. Some of you guys familiar with that? And you might think of Romans 1 this way, first in, last out. The truth is God has made certain things clear in nature, general revelation to all people, and He holds all people accountable. And the government is responsible by God to enforce those things. And so people are entitled to life. That's why a life is forfeited in capital punishment when life is taken. We all know naturally murder is wrong, the taking of innocent life. We all know naturally that man was made for woman and woman was made for man. And so 
first in, last out. God makes this clear. Right from the beginning, everybody knows this, says God. And it's one of the last things, one of the last things that a society that is on the descent in terms of morality will come to discard. It's one of the first things they know because of general revelation and natural moral law. It's one of the last things to go. And friends, when that goes, look out for that culture. So one preacher said recently, rightly, he never thought he would live long enough to see the day when one of our major political parties would adopt as its platform, and you know what I mean when I say platform, guiding document. This is what we will do if we are in power. That one of our major political parties would adopt as its platform, Romans 1. I haven't said much with regard to our president in these last four years. Part of the reason I have not is because I did not want to fuel the foolishness that some have engaged in with regard to the conspiracies and the hatred and the vitriol. But having refrained that way, I must speak and say that God has given marriage. And marriage is God's institution. And God has made men and women to know that they were made for one another in nature. And to violate that as this administration has done is a violation of God's natural moral law. When President Obama came into office, he said he believed that marriage was one man and one woman. And since he has been in office, his administration has taken to court, and it is winding its way through the courts now, to seek to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act, which does that very thing, defines marriage as one man and one woman. And God says, I gave government to promote what is right. And I have made clear in general revelation a certain number of things for all people that are right. And marriage is one of those. And life is one of those. And so as we vote, we are now going to have to vote accordingly. Now take a look at your outline. Government, then, is to promote what's right. Punish what is wrong. Government, thirdly, is to produce peace for our mission. Now, how, where do I get that? Here's what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2. I urge, then... First of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Here's why. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, why? Why, does, why, do, we want God, why do we want to pray for those in authority so that we can live peaceable and quiet lives? It goes on. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so what are the responsibilities of government? Promote what is right. Punish what is wrong. And then to produce peace so that we can carry out our mission, the mission to which God has called us. And so as you consider a candidate, you ask yourself, who is going to defend life? Who is going to defend marriage as God has revealed to be right in nature? And who is most likely to produce peace so that we can carry out our mission unfettered by the government or persecution? Fourthly, government is to procure resources for its work. Procure resources for its work. That means government is allowed and, in fact, is told by God, tax. Take money. So, you know, some of the conservative types, you were probably with me for a while on the old natural law kick. But now the government gets to steal my stuff. But, of course, God says you don't own any stuff. It's God's stuff. And Jesus was asked, this very question, 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus said, show me the coin used for paying tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription Caesar's? They replied, and he said to them famously, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Further, in Romans 13, Romans 13, verses 6 and 7, it says to pay honor to whom honor is due, to pay tax to whom tax is due. God gives the right to government to exact resources, but resources to carry out the responsibilities that God has given to government. And so the paying of taxes is good and right. Those are government's God-given responsibilities toward us. Promote right, punish evil, produce peace for our mission, procure resources for the government to carry out its God-given mission. Now what are our God-given responsibilities toward government? Here's what we do. We promote those who do right. The government promotes what is right, and we have a responsibility to promote those who do that right. So as you vote on Tuesday, you ask yourself, is this person that I am contemplating pulling that lever for a defender of life that God has given? Is this person a defender of marriage that God has given? If the answer to either of those is no, then you have a responsibility not to vote for that person. We promote those who do right, and in withholding our vote, we, secondly, punish those who do wrong. Now, notice I have the word punish in quotation marks. I don't mean (laughs) take matters into our own hands and pummel somebody, but we punish them at the ballot box. Those who do wrong, those who promote a Romans 1 agenda as their platform will be punished for doing that wrong because they have violated God's general revelation, natural law for what government is supposed to carry out in promoting right and punishing wrong quickly. We are to honor our leaders. Honor our leaders. You say, well, when it, honor our leaders. Here's what the Bible says. Show res- proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. You say, well, that must mean that you've got a good king. How am I going to honor a lousy king? No, it doesn't mean that the person on the throne is necessarily a good president or a good king. As a matter of fact, at the time 1 Peter 2 was written, Nero was on the throne. At the time Romans 13 was written, Nero was on the throne. President Obama is completely angelic compared to Nero. No matter what you think about our current president. And so Peter still says, honor the king. And Paul still says that he is God's agent to carry out his, God's, God-given tasks. And so we are to honor our leaders whether we agree or not, whether they are good or not. We honor them in the way we talk about them. You don't say he's your president, not mine. You don't get to say, Joe Wilson, Republican congressman, during the State of the Union address, you lie to the President of the United States. You do not say that. You honor the king. Fourthly, we are to submit to our leaders. Submit to them. (laughs) Baby. Submit to leaders? Submit to Nero? Submit the stuff I don't agree with. 1 Peter 2, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. To submit, to place yourself under, whether we agree or not. And then lastly, our responsibility is to pray 
to pray for our leaders. Here's what the Bible says. I urge then, first of all, request prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. And so I ask those of us, those of you who have been opposed to our current president, how have we honored him? And have we prayed for him? When we finish in just a bit, we're going to pray for our current president. And we're going to pray for whoever our new president, if we have a new president, is going to be. Whether President Obama or President Romney, we pray for our leaders. Now, friends, I'm almost done. You'll be glad to know. But I want to warn you, I want to warn myself about falling into the trap that I fell into in my early 20s and throughout my 20s and even into my 30s of becoming so enamored with politics as if politics and government are the solution to our problems. Nothing can be more unchristian. The government is not the solution to the problems of this world. And therefore, it should not be the hot topic for you all the time. On Facebook, on the Internet, during Cafe Community. Yes, we're responsible. Yes, we talk. Yes, we help each other. But we talk about it in light of what God says government is to do, not who the best team is and who I prefer. Charles Colson died in April of this year. Some of you know that name. In the 1970s, he was involved in the Watergate affair. He went to prison because of that. God dealt with his heart. After he got out of prison, God saved him marvelously. Charles Colson started a worldwide ministry called Prison Fellowship to reform prisons because of his experience while in prison. But Colson said this about Christian leaders during his time when he was in the White House, an unsaved man who was a special assistant to the president. Part of his job was to bring people into meetings with the president, and he would often bring religious Christian leaders in to do that. And as an unsaved man, he would laugh at these Christian leaders. Here's what, here's what uh, he says. In his days, working for President Richard Nixon, before he had allowed Jesus to transform his life, Chuck Colson used to oversee outreach to the religious community. And Colson says, I arranged special briefings in the Roosevelt Room for religious leaders, ushered wide-eyed denominational leaders into the Oval Office for private sessions with the president. He later wrote, of all the groups I dealt with, I found religious leaders the most naive about politics. Maybe that's because so many come from sheltered backgrounds, or perhaps it is the result of a mistaken perception of the demands of Christian love. Or most worrisome of all, he says, they may simply like to be around power. And that is what has happened in the evangelical Christian community in the last 30 years. We have been mobilized as a political force, but we have been used and abused by politicians. Don't be surprised at that, friends. We have responsibilities toward the government. We must fulfill them, and we should do that two days from now. But do not be naive about the place of government or the heart of the politicians in that government, no matter what party they're in. They are not our salvation. It is not their power that we revere. It is the power that allows them to rule that we revere, and that is our God. And if you want to be enamored with power, it should not be the power of government. It should be the power of Jesus, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. Notice what he said. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. He goes on. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, 
not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, I want you to notice the power that raised Jesus from the dead is being compared to the power that is at work in us who believe. And then Paul concludes, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. That's the power we want to be around. That's the power we revere. Mitt Romney is Jesus' tool. Barack Obama is Jesus' tool. But ultimately, it is King Jesus. And I say in your take-home truth, in your outline, then, we honor the true king. We honor the true king when we fulfill our responsibilities for government. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for making known, for revealing yourself and what is true and what is right to those you have made. You have revealed, made known that truth in two ways. In generally making known the structure of your created order in the way that you have made it. By virtue of that, all men know that life is sacred and is to be protected. You have made clear in natural moral law that you have made by design man for woman and woman for man. You have instituted marriage. You have instituted government to enforce what you have designed, promote what is right, and to punish what is wrong. And you have given us responsibilities then to use the freedom that you allow us in whatever degree to hold government accountable for carrying out your purposes. Lord, you have made known, you have revealed as well, in special revelation, in Scripture, you have given details about your plan for those that you have called out of the world and to yourself. And so we see government even beyond general revelation. We see government as a tool to help us carry out our mission in a peaceful way. We want to show your character as we do that, even to governments we don't agree with, even those who might be hostile to us. And so we honor and we submit and we pray. And we do all of this, Lord God, because we believe in, with all, every fiber of our being that Jesus is King, that our God reigns, and that He is sovereign in the affairs of men. I pray right now that you would help my brothers and sisters then to think about right now what they're going to do on Wednesday morning. What am I going to do on Wednesday morning? And Lord, I pray that our answer will be that we will give thanks to our God and we will rejoice in the fact that you are on the throne no matter who occupies the Oval Office. We pray all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.